Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So, AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So, welcome and enjoy. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another episode of AccidentalMuslims.com. I'm your host Zahir Parker, and today, first for us, we have a professional umpire with us today, Mr. Alaudin Palika. How are you? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Thanks for being here, Alaudin. Thanks for accepting our uh, invitation, and uh, we hope we can get some insights into uh, the cricketing world <laughs> and into your mind and how how it works. Alhamdulillah. Yes, it's just a different perspective from the cricketing world, you know. Uh, Coming from an umpiring former player, you know, and so it's just a different uh, insight to the listeners. No, I think that's the, one of the appealing aspects of, of this interview is, you know, when you watch cricket, you don't really pay attention to those two guys in the middle and the one guy in the room or the TV, uh, but, but they play a pivotal role in, in, in the cricket match. Sometimes much loved, much hate. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, we, we, uh, we're very proud of your achievements, alhamdulillah. And, uh, like I said, we just want to get to know you and get to know that perspective. So let's start with the first question, our traditional first question. Who is Alaudin Palika? Uh, just Alaudin is a normal Cape Townian boy brought up, born and bred in a small suburb called Cravenby uh, in the northern suburbs. Uh, grew up there, played cricket in the streets there. Did all my schooling from grade one to matric at Cravenby Secondary School. And... Uh, Grew up with a love for sport, runs in my family, and uh, my dad was involved in sport, and uncles were involved in sport, cousins were involved <laughs> in sport, so that was just a natural transition. Currently living in Pretoria, I got an opportunity to play professional cricket for the Titans, and basically that's where it started. So moved up to Pretoria in 1999, and then been there ever since wow 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 the one thing that stood out for me on that whole introduction was you play cricket in the streets we don't see much of that do we hey yep we don't see that I, i'm actually the sports coordinator at the islamic school in uh, pretoria yeah and that's been one of the challenges you know just to get the kids out again and for kids being kids they just now have other interests tv ipads yeah. playstation that type of thing yeah. Different era, I suppose. Eh? Yeah, Different yeah. era. But uh, I'm glad I can I'm relate to something in that. Uh, yeah. We we grew up playing obviously cricket in the streets. We loved it, you know. At Old Standard Bank, Edward, I think when they were playing, and they said, "No, mommy, it's a day yeah. night game. You yes. never play cricket." Yes. It just uh, I think it epitomizes my uh, relationship with cricket as well. Start at eight o'clock in the morning and go all the way till till uh, night time. Actually, that's yeah. exactly what it was. You know. Uh, just to get out, the love for the game, and that's how your interest grew in the sport. No, lovely stuff, man, lovely stuff. So let's maybe let's tackle a bit of the, the early years. I know you you were from Cravenby, and that means you played for Cravenby. Yes, played for Cravenby, and that uh, they were still um, developing as a club that time. Obviously, yes, yeah. they were. I think they're playing in the one C Premier League Division, one C or one D, somewhere around there. Yeah, they've done well over the years. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. I think, in fact. Uh, my club plays against him quite often, but we'll, we'll leave that allegiances aside. Uh, the question I asked one of our previous guests as well, and I, and I find this, I mean, you said street cricket, but club cricket as well. I'm not sure how it helps in Gauteng, but how do you value club cricket? How do you see that? 
Club cricket is very important. That's basically your introduction to, if you want to call it, real cricket. Because in the streets, you know, we experiment. Tennis ball, tape off the side, get some reverse swing. <laughs> so so we, we we're actually cheating there. <laughs> but um, club cricket is very important. That's basically your foundation for you to step to the next level. And actually before club cricket, it's school cricket. Uh, I attended Cravenby. We didn't have a school team. At that time, it was still Indian Affairs. So we only played against Rylands and we Pelican Park. Mm. So we only played against two other schools. We didn't really play against other schools. Uh, and that's when I decided to join the cricket club, which was just next to the school. And the club played in the leagues. And um, I remember I was 15 years old playing first team cricket, you know, like a real kid with playing with adults. And the club structure really that gave me an opportunity to excel because I didn't play school cricket. Uh, I was invited to trials from the cl- cricket club, and that's where I basically got an opportunity, broke into the Western Province under 15 team, under 19 team, and then from there, you know, opportunities just grew. Uh, fortunately, I attended the cricket academy here in Cape Town, and. Uh, then word got out there that there's a guy playing here, I played for Western Province. Uh, and then when the opportunity came for the professional contract at Northerns, and that's when I decided to make the move. So yes, club cricket, very important. It's not like it was in the past. In the past, it was very competitive. You had 40 to 45-year-old guys playing Premier League cricket with many, many years of experience. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the situation in Cape Town at the moment, but in Pretoria, by the, you seldom find a team that has guys over the age of 30. Okay. So uh, I think the love for the game is diminishing where guys are not, uh, you know, that passion to play. Uh, uh, one of my good friends, I just saw the other day, he could be in his late 40s and he's still playing club cricket in Cape Town mm-hmm. and we play together. So um, I think that's a challenge that we need to overcome. It's just to get the numbers back at club cricket, get them to enjoy the game again. And mm-hmm. that's basically where you need to start off if you want to make a career from cricket. And like I said earlier, it's different era, so there's lots more um, diversions, lots more interests uh, and alternatives, I suppose, to cricket. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's, uh, if it's not digital or technological, uh, you, you, <laughs> you, you're fighting a, a good fight over there. <laughs> well, I just saw yesterday at the, at the ODI game, they had this uh, interactive cricket yes, thing yes, where yes, you're yes. batting with... I mean, you don't even have to play real cricket. <laughs> okay, let's move to that. Uh, well, let's move to the topic of you moving from Cape Town to to Pretoria. Was it to Joburg at that time? Uh, Pretoria. 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 Um, how old were you firstly at that stage? Uh, 21. 21. So yeah. you're a young man moving. Very young. You, were you ever outside of Cape Town at that time? Or? Yes, uh, that's, that have made it a bit easier. Okay. Uh, while playing in Cape Town, uh, I got an opportunity to play club cricket in the UK. Oh. So that was in 98. So in 1998, I went to Sussex, which is just an hour outside London. Mm. I was an overseas player for a club there called East Grinstead Cricket Club. And uh, I think I was always... A homeboy type of thing, never left home, used to go and play cricket on the streets, make sure I come home to have lunch, go again, <laughs> come back. So kind of, you know, spoon fed if you want to call it that. Yeah. And that was my real introduction to the real world. Okay. Going to the UK, six months on my own, nobody there, no one to give you food. And after a week, I actually wanted to come back home thinking, what am I doing here? This is not for me. So what made you stay? 
cricket because <laughs> I was playing cricket and I thought, well, it's an opportunity. Let me see if I can, you know, make something of this. Yes. So we played as an overseas player and the club took care of your flights, your accommodation and things like that. Mm. A challenge that all our Muslims always find when we travel the world is to find halal food. Mm. So that was a very big challenge in Sussex. Um, the closest masjid was about an hour's drive by bus. Wow. Uh, there was no halal food in the area, so it was fish, it was eggs, it was vegetables. So, so that made it uncomfortable. But, you know, uh, after the week, I just told myself, you have to embrace this challenge and try and, you know, work around it and make the best of it. So I had a six-month stint there, came back, and my whole perspective of life changed, how... Uh, you know, you basically seen uh, the world. You thought Cape Town was the world. But mm. in fact, prior to that, I've, ne- I've only been to P, never been out of Cape Town. So that was the first 20-year-old moving out of the country, finding your feet. You know, uh, I mean, they speak English there, but it sounds like a different language. You couldn't <laughs> understand them with the accent. Yes, yes, so yes. that was a challenge and uh, came back, better person. Uh, played for Primrose Cricket Club at the time. And then the next year, in 99, I went again, but this time did research and uh, ended up playing in the Birmingham League, which was much better. Food wasn't a problem. Masjid wasn't a problem. Uh, people were very friendly. And uh, I, in fact, I did very well there. And that's where I got signed up by the Titans while playing in the UK. I got a call from Peter Kirsten one day I don't know how he got my number he must have contacted my dad here and he phoned me there and said listen uh, would you be interested in signing a a contract with the Titans and I said for sure I mean I was just playing club cricket back home I had the odd I was in the Western Province squad but not really guaranteed you know a place in the starting lineup but you were in the squad I mean I was competing with guys like Gary Kirsten Herschel Gibbs Cullis Okay. You know, so as a batsman, you're basically waiting for them to get selected and then being a backup player. And I just thought, I'm young. There's an opportunity as for a professional cricket contract yeah. and just grabbed at it. No, lovely. So uh, you now moved up. You were in Pretoria. You were alone that time, I'm assuming? Yes, I was alone at that time. So you settled down. Cricket was the love, the driving force uh, that keep you kept you motivated. So take us through those processes uh, in terms of... Uh, the Titans, how was the welcome, how was the setup, Com- diff- how was the culture compared to Cape Town? Yes, again, very challenging because uh, I moved to uh, play for the Titans. They are based in Centurion, now called Centurion. When I moved there, it was called Verwoodbergstadt, which is still very Afrikaans. Mm-hmm. Um, they had no idea about Islam, they had no idea about Muslims. And I couldn't believe it. Lodium, which is the Indian area, is only 20 k's away. So on the doorstep, they had Muslims, they had halal food, they had masjids. But yet they didn't know. I mean, they knew Muslim Islam is in a religion, yeah. but they didn't know how to treat Muslims. They didn't know what my requirements were. So that was a challenge because initially they, the, the, the Titans set me up with the accommodation and everything sorted. They said, you'll be staying with some Indian people. I said, okay, fantastic. Only to get there to find out I'm staying with a Hindu family. Mm. We had a bar in the house. And I just told them straight away, I said, I can't stay here. Mm. They put me up for about two weeks in a flat just outside the ground there. There's some flat. They rented an apartment there. Stayed there. And then I started to, because I've never been to Pretoria before. So I didn't even know 
who, what people were there, what type of uh, environment it is. And then I managed to contact one of my good school friends. Uh, his name is Imran Parker, so I don't know if he's any <laughs> relation to you. And his father's sister from Cravenby got married and lived in Lodium. Yeah. So we made a connection. I visited them and they most gladly said, you're most welcome to come and live with us, to, you know, till you find a place. And I ended up living with them for my full duration until they decided to move back to Cape Town. <laughs> wow, wow. So, uh, but by then I'd been there for two and a half years already. I was quite settled and, uh, and then you just, you know, six months I played cricket in Gauteng and then moved back Cape Town for six months. So I did that for about, let's say about four, four and a half years. And then I met my wife and then everything changed. <laughs> Uh, so in 2003, I got married and then just settled down in Lodium and We've been, there. been there ever since. But you're somewhat of a, of a trailblazer in terms of Muslims entering the sporting arena professionally. And I mean, Alhamdulillah, later on Hashim and well, first Ahmed and then Hashim Amla came along. Um, but your story fits in nicely in that period as well. It, it, I mean, you indicated that they didn't know much about yeah. Islam, about Muslims. And it's understandable. We just came out of a period where there were a lot of segregation and all of that. But um, they made efforts for you. Yeah, and yeah, I think that was uh, commendable from, from what I'm hearing. Yeah. But from that point of view, do you see yourself um, perhaps as that trendsetter in terms of uh, changing mindsets within the, I mean, within the culture of cricket in South Africa? Definitely, uh, when, when I started playing, uh, I can remember on the tips of my fingers the amount of Muslim players because we tried to stick together. Yeah. At Western Province, they had Fike Davids, who is currently the coach of, assistant coach of the Cobras. They had Hassan Pangaka, you know, so mostly the Cape Townian guys were where all the Muslims were, and the Durban guys, and it was myself. Then from PE, there was a guy called Shafiq Abrams. He played one international for South Africa. Yeah. And then Durban had quite a few. They had uh, the Amla brothers. They had uh, Ashraf Mall. And in Gauteng, there were one or two guys from that came from Lanasia and Azadwal. So there was a handful of Muslim players. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys in uh, Plumfontein had nobody. The guys in East London had nobody. So that was a challenge for us, you know, to try and educate and try and... Uh, Alhamdulillah, now at domestic level... At every ground you get halal food, proper catering, you know, th- those days was a challenge. We used to get rolls and vegetables or, or they used to give you a piece of fish or, you know, that was the mm. best thing. But mentally I prepared for it. I knew that was the thing and that you just had to deal with it. Um, from an umpiring point of view now, because that's what I'm uh, on the panel of Cricket South Africa. We are 17 umpires. Uh, we have one Muslim guy who is from Cape Town, Abdullah Stienkamp and myself, so we're the two Muslim guys out of 17 umpires. Uh, they've, I've made them understand and things like that. For example, when I'm umpiring during the interval, if we come off the field, they know I'm gonna read my salah in the change room. They'll leave me for 10 minutes, nobody will come inside, they'll give me my space, uh, you know? So that from that point of view, they've also educated, they ask questions, they, you know, interested, uh, I think a few years ago, they had that incident about the crane that collapsed in, uh, in Makkah. Yes, and yes, then, yes. so they were asking me, so, so these people, you know, how important was it for them? They passed away in Makkah. 
uh, it was on a Friday, you know, so mm. there were there were questions asked about Islam, you know. So uh, I would say my colleagues, they've more educated now and they're not scared to ask me any questions because they know they have a, a trusted person around them and they feel free to ask questions about Islam. I think that's the beauty of uh, a rainbow nation, so to speak. Yeah. When we do interact and make connections, it's about understanding and endearing ourselves to, yeah. to one another. Uh, in whichever capacity, yeah. whether it's cricket, uh, whether it's business, social, doesn't matter. Um, if you have a unity in purpose, it, it kind of helps things and that's where the understanding grows, you know. Yeah. Um, what I liked about uh, that, 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 that story you indicated about, you know, you were a handful yeah. back in the day, is the fact that uh, it was difficult, um, it was challenging. But you guys persevered. You never, never gave up. And what I think a lot of people don't understand is that you had that challenge, plus you had your on-field challenge. You know, every normal, well, I say normal, but every cricketer has that pressure, has that uh, performance um, uh, motivation. Yeah. But you guys, that that first set of of non-white cricketers, so to speak, and Muslim uh, particularly as well, had additional challenges. Did it impact on your game? I think that's the question I want to ask. <laughs> Yeah, you can say to a certain extent because you knew that uh, you had an op- you were selected. Mm. If you didn't perform, you were under pressure for the next game. Mm. Whereas uh, you didn't have that guarantee where the coach said, "Listen, you've got an extended run. You've got these five games, and uh, you know whether you fail or perform or not, we, you know you're going to play five games." Uh, if I just look at Hashim, for example, he had a difficult series in his debut against England. He got dropped. Then he got selected again against New Zealand's uh, series and he was told during that series, there's four test matches or five, whatever it was. You're going to play all these test matches. And I think it was at Newlands, he got 160 in one of the games and the rest is history. So I think it's just a matter of uh, backing yourself, but knowing that I'm under pressure. If I don't perform, I don't perform. So... You just got to bl- block that out and trust your own ability and, you know, inshallah, all goes well. Okay, before we move on to, to how you got into umpiring, just maybe a, a, a lighter-hearted question. Uh, our new Cape Town manager likes to ask this question. In fact, she told us we must ask this question. Do you like pineapple on your pizza? Do you eat pizza? Yes, I do eat pineapple. <laughs> I do eat pizza and I love pineapple. <laughs> on the pizza? On the pizza. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Aisha, you heard that, eh? All right, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so, so you, you, how long were you uh, playing uh, for the Titans? So yeah, so I moved down in 99, had a contract there, played, was in the Titans squad. Uh, in 2004, the franchise system came in. So when I played, there was 11 teams, mm. 11 provinces, and it was all 11 played in one group. Uh, in 2004, the franchise... That uh, only six franchises, so it was cut from 11 to 6. And then Easterns and Northerns had to merge to form one franchise called the Titans. And the rule there was that in order for that merger to work, they had to take eight players from Easterns and eight players from Titans. So that meant that out of the squad of 16 of the Titans, eight players were not going to get a contract. So I didn't initially get a contract there, but... Northern's Cricket Units, uh, Union still kept me in the system. Uh, they gave me a, a head coach position at one of the areas there. And so I was still playing cricket till then. 
Then uh, in 2006, when they just, the budgets got cut and things like that, and they decided, listen, there's, there isn't funds for you to, uh, to give you a contract any longer. So we'll have to look at alternatives, maybe pay for play and things like that. And I was married at the time and I had expenses and I said, I just can't afford to work, you know, not work and just get a pay for play contract. I need something more stable. Yeah. And then that's uh, when I decided that's it. Uh, I'm not going to go and pursue contracts anywhere else. I had an option to maybe go to Bloemfontein for a year. But then it meant packing up, going. My wife had a good job. Packing up, moving to Bloemfontein. You're there for one year. Then it doesn't work out. Then you got to come back. And I just decided, well, that's it. So at the age of 28, I retired. The one piece of advice that I did get from our number one umpire in South Africa, Marie Rasmus, um, he said, if you're going to umpire, start as soon as you can. Don't go and play club cricket. Don't go and do play a coach. Don't do those things. Once you retire from first class cricket, start umpiring immediately. And that was the best advice that he could have given me because it just made the decision easier. So in 2006, uh, I, I won't remember, I won't forget that. We played in the final at Newlands against Western Province. I was playing for Northerns. We won the game. And it was just a fitting note for my last game. Last first, last game at Newlands, where it all started, ended it off there. And I was quite satisfied with, with the opportunities given and absolutely no regrets. No, beautiful ending, alhamdulillah, to that story. I think it doesn't mean, the career doesn't necessarily have to be long for it to be fruitful yep. and to be satisfying. Uh, and it's a nice that you, you got to have that uh, moment uh, at Newlands. Yep. I'm sure the Cape Town faithful wasn't very happy with you, but uh, <laughs> well, let's forget about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting you mentioned Maria Erasmus. Um, yeah. Any other people in your life that you consider a mentor? Oh, does, do you consider him a mentor? Firstly, I should say. Yes, put it that way. yes, yes, definitely. I mean, we still keep in touch with him now if there's any issues I have, whatever. Uh, mentors are very important and uh, you'll find that uh, along the road, you'll find different people add different values to your career so maybe initially when i just started off you needed somebody that was like a school teacher type of thing this is what you have to do this way to get into routines and then as the years go by you might not need him any longer but to go to the next level you need somebody that he might have only been a domestic umpire or a domestic player now you get onto the international scene so you need somebody that can mentor you in a different role because that first mentor might not have that experience of dealing with international cricket and so forth. Mm. So yes, I've had a couple of mentors uh, along the way, um, guys that have played crucial uh, parts in my career. It's obviously my dad, who is currently still an umpire. Mm-hmm. He's uh, the umpire at Weinberg Boys High, and obviously my uncle, who's better known as Barlow in in Cape Town, isn't it, Hassan? Uh, he's the umpire at Rondebosch Boys Eye. So they're still actively involved in that. So that was a drive for me. You know, my dad always says when he umpired, he didn't have the opportunity and age was not on his side and things like that. And I'm basically now living his dream, you know. So for me, that's very satisfying. 
So those are the first two mentors. Uh, I still get calls from Hassan after every game. You should have done this. You didn't do this. I see you didn't move quick into position. So very, very critical. But, you know, you, you need to take all that on board. He's a traditionalist, eh? Yes, very, very. So you need to take all that. Uh, uh, if, I, if you think about uh, Billy Bowden's, all his antiques on the field. Yeah. My uncle Hassan was doing it way, way before Billy. <laughs> I think a lot of people played local cricket though. can testify to that, yes. definitely. Oh, yes, lovely so stuff. And outside of cricket mentors, uh, do you... Do you follow uh, people outside of cricket so to speak uh, yeah I do follow but uh, I don't really uh, we've got uh, one or two sports psychologist guys that we you know chat to and that but that's just on a need to be basis whenever you need it but uh, mainly within umpiring because they can just relate to you when, you have a, when you've had a tough day and you need to come back and unwind you're sitting all by yourself in the hotel and you're just grumpy because <laughs> you've had a bad day and yeah. it's been difficult and then there's times like that you might just want to call your mentor and say, listen, I've had this and this and that. And they can just share their experiences. Uh, don't worry, this and whatever it happens and maybe learn from it. What can you do differently and yeah. and what's the reason? Maybe sometimes you could be here and uh, at home, the geezer could have been, the geezer burst now. Your wife tells you in the morning <laughs> of the game, the geezer's burst. So you're on the field and there's that things in the back of your mind thinking, oh, I'm away from home. She's now got to sort that out. What damage is there? Who's going to, you know, it's, it's things like that. So that could have an effect on decision making because your mind is, is somewhere else. Yeah. So it's just nice to have somebody that you can chat to and that. So mainly all my mentors are umpires, current and former umpires. Okay, no, lovely. Okay, so, so you're moving now into umpiring. Got this advice from Maria Rasmus. When was the decision made actually to become an umpire? It was made two years before I stopped playing. Oh, wow. So two years before I stopped playing, I already said the day when I stopped playing, I'm going to start umpiring really. So it was an easy decision when my contract mm. came to an end because I, I've already made up my mind. Mm. I attended one or two courses while playing just so that you can familiarize yourself with the laws of the game. And then uh, finished, the, that game was in April 2006, done. My contract ended the 30th of April. They said they're not renewing. I said, thank you very much. I knew exactly where I stood. Um, I think it was August of that year. I enrolled at Northern's uh, Cricket Umpires, attended some courses, wrote my exams. Um, October, when the season started, umpired my first club game and then just took it from there. Wow. So you, you really start at club level. <laughs> yes, that's again, same as, as, as when you play and when you umpire, when you score, anything involving cricket starts at club level. So the club structures are very, very important to, you know, go to, to, to get to the next level because that's where your foundation is, uh, is being set. So you do, I was quite fortunate that I only had to do one year of club cricket before I got invited to a Cricket South Africa tournament. So being a former first class player, you, I was kind of fast tracked. Um, to get to first class level, uh, it normally takes you between seven and ten years of umpiring tournaments because you start off with the under 13 week, then the next year you go to under 15, and that only if you end in the top three. If you end six, seven, eight, they'll send you back to the same tournament. So you need to be ending in the top three every year to be able to progress through the tournaments. Sure. So it's a long process. But fortunately, I started at University Week, which is the third highest tournament. So I didn't have to start at under 13 level. And uh, that helped me. So I went to two tournaments in, in 2000, I think it was, 2000 and 
seven and eight, somewhere around there. So I started in 2006. 2007, I was invited for two tournaments. 2008, I was invited for two tournaments. And 2009, I got onto the first class panel. So it took me two and a half to three seasons of umpiring to get onto the first class panel. And I know many people that's been umpiring for 20 years and haven't. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so that begs the question then. You mentioned top three. So yeah. how do you, how, how do they appraise uh, yeah, the umpires? At, at, at tournaments, what happens is you umpire and the captains fill in a captain's report. So they rate you according to decision making, player management, laws of the game. Uh, there's about five things on there basically. So they rate you according to that. So the captains at tournaments, that's very important. And then you have a, an umpire's manager at the venue. So he goes around to each game. He watches you, he looks for movements, he looks for things that they can assist you with and things like that. And then you get ranked accordingly by the teams as well. So at the end of the tournament, each captain or coach has an opportunity to rank the umpires that stood for them for the week. Mm -hmm. So then they use that as a guide and and basically the umpire coaches, they've got many years of experience. Mm -hmm. And they just know when they see somebody umpire, they just, they'll just know this guy's got something and he can go to the next level. So wow. that does help when you have these guys that are assessing you and not anybody that doesn't have any knowledge about umpiring. I'm smiling here if you guys can't see through the mic. I'm smiling for two reasons. One is I like to smile. And two is this is fascinating stuff. I mean, again, I started off this conversation saying we don't often hear the umpire stories. And just to get a different angle, different perspective. It's fun. <laughs> I think this is quite awesome. You guys are often the forgotten bit of the cricket. Definitely. Oh, yeah, but, uh, there's a lot of intricacies involved in umpiring. Yeah. And, and, and again, I'm just taking one back. This was initially my first question of the umpiring section. It's not only theoretical uh, in terms of your testing to become a buyer. Uh, I'm assuming there's a practical part as well. Practical is very important because that's what you do all the time. You're on the field. <laughs> yeah. There's you know field technique. There's field management. There's match management. I mean, the laws is only a small percent of it. But in order for you to umpire, you need to know the laws and how to apply that. So yeah. the first thing is, uh, at the moment, there are three exams that you do. The first one is a level one exam, which is just basic laws of the game. The exam is multiple choice and true and false so it's very easy you need however in every umpire's exam you need 80 percent to pass whoa okay so the 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 standard is high the level to pass is high because you cannot only know 50 percent of the laws you need to know everything yeah there are 42 laws so covered in quite detail written by some english guys that we don't know so when we read some of the english like i said earlier the English they speak and write is a different type of language. <laughs> um, so there's the level one, which is straightforward. That's, you know, real entrance level. Once you do that, you can umpire games, but you'll probably do second or third division cricket because the cricket, the standard is not so high as... And the pressure is obviously not so and high. Yes, and, uh, and that's where you learn. So uh, most associations write the exam, umpire a few games just to get a feel because it's easy just to... Uh, Read the laws, learn it, and just verbatim spit it out there. It's how to apply it. That's the real challenge of umpiring. And then you go on to a level two exam, which is a bit more in detail. They'll give you uh, a bit more, still theory related, but the questions are more, they'll ask you maybe uh, mention five ways uh, of being dismissed. So you'd have to write, whereas level one, 
it's just multiple choice and true and false. So level two is a bit more writing, pass mark is still 80. When you get to level three, then it's a bit more complicated because then there's a scenario. So they give you something that happened in the match. No guidance, no lead, whatever. You need to read that situation. And sometimes it's easier when it happens in front of you, you can apply it. Now to read and put it into perspective and see what is actually happening in this situation here. And then you need to, then they'll just give you the scenario and say five marks. So you need to read there, see what's happening and apply the laws of the game. So the level three is a bit more tougher because it's more scenario based. Uh, but again, it's the application of the laws. And then it's the final one, which is called your national exam. And that's only by invitation. So level one, two, and three, anybody can write. Join your association, attend the course, write the exam, you get a certificate. The national one uh, is by invitation from Cricket South Africa. So once they've identified uh, that you are an umpire that would like to get onto the panel, then you get invited to write your national exam, okay. which is similar to a level three, but just more advanced. Okay. So it's just scenario-based and things that happens in games. Yeah, just... Um <laughs> I want to get to that question now. Again, I'm smiling because it's fascinating. Khalil, I think you want to record this one because mm-hmm. I know a good friend of mine, uh, again, is going to relate to club cricket. Good friend of ours always says he doesn't want to play cricket in the third division anymore because of player umpires. And the most contentious decision is always that LBW. So, okay, for the benefit of this mutual friend of ours and for the rest of South Africa and possibly the world, let's just explain to us the LBW. If you can. And this is, I don't know if it's level 1, 2, or 3 now, please. Go LBW ahead. still stays LBW, so <laughs> that's it. Basically, LBW stands for leg before wicket. So that means if the batsman uh, does not make contact with the ball, with his bat, and he's hit on the pad or any part of the body, because sometimes you can duck, ball hits on your shoulder. If in the umpire's opinion it's going to hit the stumps, you can be given out LBW. So there's just a few uh, things that needs to be satisfied for LBW. The first thing, which is the most important thing, the ball has to hit the wicket, right? So some guys can't understand that. So the ball has to be in line to hit the wicket. Uh, for a right-hand batsman, now it gets a bit technical now. Because for a right-hand batsman, we have an offside and a leg, and a leg side. For a left-hand batsman, we also have an offside and a leg side. But they are on opposite sides because of left and right, because they face different directions. Um, so one of the conditions for LBW is the ball has to pitch in line with the stumps or on the offside. So if it pitches on the le- outside leg, su- leg stump, you cannot be given out. Even if it's hitting the stumps halfway down, no bat, whatever, it satisfies everything except that it pitches outside leg, you cannot be given out. So the first thing is it has to hit the stumps. It has to pitch outside off or in line with the stumps. There must be no bat involved. So that means that if the batsman gets an inside edge, you cannot be given out. It has to hit the pad or any part of his body. And then the last one is it has to hit the wickets. So there's four things that an umpire has to take into account before considering giving an LBW. And it's discretion. Discretion. I know it's discretion. If you just listen, I said, in the umpire's opinion. Opinion, there we go. In my opinion, if that's going to hit the stump, I'm going to give it. It might not have hit the stump, Mm. but it's just in my opinion. Do you know the rule? Number? In the books? LBW rule, you see there's 42 uh, rules. Yeah, um, not really. Uh, oh, okay, scrap uh, that one. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't let them see that one. <laughs> uh, there's 42, I, I know all the laws, but... Um, I can just pull you a leg there, but... Uh, so some, for the, uh, but some guys... They know it verbatim. They know it verbatim. I'm not like 
<laughs> I just know what it says. You know what it is. Yeah, you can apply it. It's, I think it's law 20-something. You see, last year the laws changed. Okay. So the whole re- law book was rewritten last year. Wow. Did not know that. <laughs> so do you guys keep the book with you on the field or not? No. no. On the tablet now? Uh, no tablets, nothing. No okay. communication devices. You okay. can't even umpire with the smartwatch because it's a communication device. Oh, wow. Wow. So uh, you need the normal watch. So you know, in any job, there's this competition. Is DRS competition for you guys? Um, not actually. Eh? Um, we actually prefer the technology because what happens is um, when there's no technology and you get a decision that you think you're right, but the players think that you've got it wrong, it creates pressure for the next decision. It creates animosity on the field between the players, the batsmen, the, you know. Uh, so with DRS, at the end of the day, the correct decision will be made. And it's proven, I think before DRS, the umpire's correct decision was about 91%. And now with DRS, it's 97%. <laughs> so DRS just proved that 97% of the time, the umpires are making the right decision. So it's good for the game because it just takes out all the animosity. There's no chirping. There's no ill feeling. It's done. You get on. You proved either right or wrong. And at the end of the day, the right decision is made if they still have reviews left. <laughs> That's true. Eh? I think there's always a, a human element to it. And Definitely. like you said, it's an opinion. It's a discretion. I just hope club cricketers understand that it's an opinion. It's a discretion. Love the game and play it. Please. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I lost my question I wanted to ask you now. I haven't asked you this question. Is um, What did you say is the most challenging aspect of your profession? Definitely the traveling. Uh, you spend a lot of time away from home. And I've just mentioned that earlier on about the geezer thing. Uh, it's just uh, I've myself and my wife and we've got no kids. So she's at alone at home most of the time. Uh, fortunately for, uh, for us, the, she's got a good support structure at home. Uh, mom lives one street away from us and her sister lives two streets in the other direction. So they're quite close by. So she's got that support there. Um, so the time away from home is the most challenging thing. You, you know, you can't. Uh, well, as we, as we speak now, my father-in-law has been admitted to hospital, and like I feel like helpless. Uh, mm. My wife needs me in this time, and uh, I'm here in Cape Town, only getting back on on Saturday. So I've been here for five days. Uh, so so that's a, a big challenge. The time away from home, you still gotta lead your lives, and life carries on, but. Easier said than done. Yeah. So I think the greatest challenge is the time away from home, family, okay. and that kind of thing. The food part, we got around that already, so now that's <laughs> not, uh, not an issue anymore. No, In no. Cape Town, we have no issues. Um, yeah, so that's a yeah, oh, challenge. Awesome, awesome. Um, Laurin, what are you most grateful for as you're sitting here, besides being on this podcast? Uh, just grateful for all the opportunities that the Almighty has given me. Uh, quite fortunate two years ago I performed Hajj and that was uh, you know one of the my, my biggest dreams you know growing up in Cape Town my mom always used to tell me uh, you know while well, well, I was away so have you made your intention when are you going when are you going you know that kind of thing and we've got the Sao process now and things like that and um, in 2010 she wanted to go for Umrah and she did the Mahram. She asked me and I didn't think twice. I said, yes, I'm going with you. 
So my wife, my mom and myself went in 2010. And when we came back and that's when we made our intention and said, we need to do this. We applied and you know, the whole process about the accreditation thing. And Alhamdulillah in 2017, we got accredited and we went in that same year. And I just came back from Tawaf in Makkah. And I got a call from our manager to tell me that you've been selected on the ICC panel. That's oh, where I got oh, the news. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you know? so, so that was a special moment for me, a special trip and to get the news there in the blessed city of Makkah. You know, that was, uh, I mean, I was like in tears there and, I was, and, and in a better place with my wife to share the, that news with her. You know, so that's it. So I just thank Allah for all the opportunities that I've had. You know, I've traveled the world. I've met lots of people. I've... Uh, played first class cricket, I've got a degree, I've, you know, it's just, it's just basically, you know, it's only I'd like to thank you, so everything's possible due to him. It's hard to listen to that story, but I'm feeling a bit goosebumps here, man. Subhanallah, thank you for sharing that. What's your favorite Quranic ayah, story, hadith, something that you reflect upon every now and then? I, I was the I, I I did my BCom degree. I'm not I, while I was in Cape Town, and then obviously the opportunity came to play cricket. So I moved to Pretoria, played f- till 2006, and uh, I didn't want to go back into the office job eight to five. And after speaking to Maria as well, I said, if you want to become an umpire, the best profession to be is in the teaching profession. So I registered for a BA degree at UNISA, studied, alhamdulillah, finished it, and joined a school called Al-Asr, where I taught for 13 years. I taught maths and EMS and ran the sports there. And uh, so that really was a change in my life, joining an Islamic school, seeing a different perspective of life. And the school's motto there is basically they try to love the Quran and they inculcate the Quran in the curriculum. So when you talk about uh, maths, for example, which I taught, for every exam that I set, I had to use verses from the Quran where there's numbers and there's plenty of verses where there's numbers. So using that there. So I think that that really, you know, set me on a different path. So I would say that my favorite verse is probably Surah Asr. You mentioned earlier, I don't know if this is maybe I'm preempting it. Uh, what's your earliest cricketing memory? Earliest cricketing memory uh, has a probably as a I played soccer before cricket, so <laughs> okay. uh, um, I remember my soccer career. The earliest cricketing memory was I started off my introduction to this game was actually being a scorekeeper. So I was the scorekeeper for Elsa's River Cricket Club because my dad played for Elsa's River Cricket mm. Club and I was a scorekeeper there. So, you know, my earliest memories of cricket was that. And then as a young boy, we used to go and watch cricket at Benson and Edges Cricket at Newlands. And uh, playing, my I scored at uh, Elsa's River, but I played for Cray Cricket Club. <laughs> so that's uh, basically, yeah, that's my earliest memory where I really got introduced to cricket. Oh, lovely, lovely, lovely. And a question a friend asked me to ask you is if you could have a hundred partnership with any cricketer, living, passed away, past, present, who would that be? 
probably Sachin Tendulkar, you know, <laughs> just to stand on the other end and, and watch some of those glorious cover drives and hooks and pulls and cuts. Uh, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed watching him bet. You know, it's just he was just a master at, uh, at what he did. Yeah. Anybody had the opportunity to umpire him, right? No. <laughs> Maybe we should get a, a all-time team together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we can do that. Okay, my final question uh, to you, and it's our question we usually end off with, is um, it's your last day to love you. You are going to die. Besides your kalima, what, what would you tell your loved ones? Yeah, just, uh, you know, remember me for the person that I was. You know, uh, uh, I'm normally a very easygoing guy. Nothing bothers me in that. And, uh, yeah, just remember me for who I was and not for what I did. <laughs> Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. Fascinating talking to you, Alaudin. You definitely gave us a different perspective for cricket and reminded us that umpires are not robots, they are people. And I think what makes cricket a, a unique sport is that it's played by human beings with emotions and geezers and everything. Alhamdulillah. And thank you for sharing. We really appreciate it. Thank you for accepting our invitation That's and all plan. the best for your career. And uh, we will continue supporting and we're very proud of you. Shukran. And welcome to the AccidentalMuslims.com family. Shukran and thank you for the opportunity. No problem. So that's it for today's show. We hope we added value. We hope you enjoyed it. But most of all, we hope our guest has inspired you to live with purpose. Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at AccidentalMuslims.com If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please uh, do contact us and remember feedback is our oxygen so follow us on social media we're on facebook instagram and twitter i hope you enjoyed god bless assalamu alaikum